Gloria Curtis was an Ojibwe woman who moved to Minneapolis in the 1960s, but she got sick. She had infectious hepatitis. Gloria got so ill, she had to be hospitalized, but the experience became a nightmare. Advocates for Gloria told journalist Bill Moyers in 1973 that Gloria received poor care. They alleged it was because she was indigenous. They told Moyers Gloria didn't trust the staff and said they even ignored her requests for toilet paper at one point. The story went that Gloria stabilized and was eventually sent home, but her condition got worse. She needed more care, but her experience in the hospital was so bad, she refused to go back. Finally, she was admitted to another hospital. Not long after, though, Gloria died. Very sad. Very sad. Richard Wright was living in Minneapolis at the time. He's a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe in northern Minnesota. Richard saw the community's response to Gloria's death. It was an outrage reaction. Richard regularly went to community meetings about issues facing indigenous people across the region. And that's when I started to find out more about Gloria. Richard didn't know Gloria personally, but he worked in a clinic for years. He says he knew many indigenous people who faced discrimination when they needed health care. And I think that it had happened with such high incidence that the American Indian people said, this has got to stop. You know what? We're going to start our own clinic. We're going to start our own medical facility. And they did. That clinic would become the Indian Health Board of Minneapolis. It opened in 1971. Richard worked there for decades as a substance use counselor. Today, he provides spiritual guidance to indigenous patients who come into the clinic for mental health services. The Indian Health Board caters to indigenous people living in the Twin Cities, but it's not part of the Indian Health Service, the government agency responsible for providing health care to indigenous people. It's a nonprofit health center. It gets federal funding to fill gaps in care for urban indigenous people in particular. While enrolled members of federally recognized tribes can access the Indian Health Service or tribally run health care on their reservations, indigenous people who live in cities can find themselves without access to the care they're entitled to. And that's a lot of people. Approximately 70% of indigenous people in the United States live in urban areas. In this episode, we'll look back on the reasons why many indigenous people left their reservations for the city. There was an urban relocation program in the mid-20th century supported by the federal government to move Native American peoples from reservation or rural Indian country to major metropolises. When indigenous people arrived, there was little support, including the health care guaranteed to them in treaties. Even though we're living in urban areas now, that doesn't mean that our benefits should leave us. Indigenous urban health providers started to open their doors around the country. But the battle for healthcare resources continued, as some politicians were looking to cut back. They came into the mindset that it doesn't make sense for the federal government to continue on with a budget for urban Indian health. So I think that put our community on edge. Like, are we going to lose our clinic? I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is American Diagnosis. Richard Wright grew up on Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. The area was remote. The island that I grew up on, it was so inaccessible that the mail was delivered by boat. 
Growing up in rural Minnesota, Richard says life flowed with the seasons, fishing one part of the year, harvesting wild rice in others. But there was no steady employment where they would go to work and, and earn a paycheck. And then the Borough of Indian Affairs announced that Relocation Act. After World War II, the Bureau of Indian Affairs started pushing Indigenous people to move to cities. Richard's mother, father, and several of his siblings moved to Chicago in the early 1950s. His dad got a job as a truck driver. Richard remembers one day when his father came back to the reservation for a visit. He put his paycheck on the table. It was $112, and that's what he made a week. And that would have been 1955 or so. That was huge money back then. This was the dream the Bureau of Indian Affairs promoted. A new, more prosperous life for indigenous people in America's cities. They stuck these posters up around reservation agency windows, and they showed these families like living the high life in Chicago and Denver and L.A. and so forth. And look what you're going to get if you come do this. My name is Douglas K. Miller, and I am an associate professor of Native American history at Oklahoma State University. Douglas studies indigenous urban migration. He says that after World War II, the federal government was looking to cut costs. And one area where federal officials thought they should cut money is to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and to Native American people. And they used this term at the time. They want to, quote unquote, get out of the Indian business. The thinking at the time was if indigenous people moved to cities and assimilated, the federal government could cut costs by no longer needing to provide services and entitlements enshrined in its treaty obligations to indigenous people. This period came to be known as the Termination Era. Congress sought to end the special relationship between the government and tribes. Along the way, the policy erased some indigenous rights. Some tribes lost sovereignty over criminal and civil court cases, reservation land was forfeit, and some tribes lost their federal recognition entirely. In his research on the government's relocation program, Douglas found letters indigenous people wrote to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So in these letters Native people wrote, they would often describe how desperate their situation really was. They would say things like, please get me out of Oklahoma. I have nothing here. They would talk about that they're, they're cold, they're hungry. Um, yeah, I remember one letter that a, a woman very, in a very detailed description talks about exactly how far she has to haul water up to her house each morning and just you know how burdensome it is. Douglas says people looking to relocate most commonly wrote about work. I want a job. I want to support my family. I fought in World War II. I proved myself. I can do things. I have skills. I want to work. I want to work. Early iterations of the program could be as basic as a one-way bus ticket and short-term housing assistance. Douglas says after the first years, the program became more involved. So not only are they going to help you get an apartment and sort of get set up somewhere, they're actually going to get you into a welding program or a hairdressing program. Those were the really popular occupations. For some, the program was a path to a new life. But the influx of indigenous people into cities created new problems the Bureau did not properly plan for. Native people who moved to Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, Salt Lake City, San Jose, needed health care like anyone else. And they would go to the local healthcare clinics and be told there that we can't serve you. You get that stuff for free on the reservation. Like, what are you doing here? 
In the 19th century, when tribes signed treaties turning over land to the United States, the federal government agreed to provide services like health care to indigenous people. That care has been historically underfunded, but it was available on reservations through the Indian Health Service or later tribally run clinics. There was nothing like this waiting for indigenous people once they started moving to cities en masse. Native people would go to the BIA office in the city and were asking them for health care. And BIA officials in these offices started to realize they had a major problem with the program. The only option some of these transplants had was to travel back to their reservation for health care. But people from tribes in Minnesota may have been sent as far away as Los Angeles. And if someone was able to make the trip back, there was no guarantee they'd be seen at the clinic back home either. No, that's all being paid for by the relocation program. Go back to Chicago. And they couldn't find health care in any direction. City life brought other challenges, too. They could rarely find a city that had enough housing or enough jobs at the same time. Families face discrimination in housing, employment, and hospitals. Richard Wright's family, who moved to Chicago in the 1950s, ran into their own troubles. Richard says his father started to drink. He'd come home Monday morning and he'd be broke. And I think a lot of times they just got evicted and eventually... My mother would put all her kids on a train and just come back to the reservation alone. Richard says the family left Chicago for Minneapolis and eventually returned to the Leech Lake Reservation. The program was mismanaged, was poorly conceived, was underfunded. Douglas Miller, the historian, says after roughly 20 years, the relocation program started to run out of steam. By the 70s, most people are really hip to what it entails. You know, they're much more knowledgeable about what the program can and cannot do. So the major shift, I would say, from 1972 onward is that the federal government just stopped investing in trying to encourage Native people to do this. The Bureau's program accounts for some of the mass movement of Indigenous people towards cities, but not nearly all of it. How else do you explain New York, for example. Um, And New York City today has the highest per capita Native American population in the country. New York City was never an official BIA relocation site. Neither was Minneapolis. But indigenous people continued to move to these and other cities for work, family, and school. Native American peoples, like people um, throughout human history, have always migrated. They've always been mobile people for their own purposes with the health of their tribal communities in mind and their own possible futures in mind. When we come back, we'll hear what health disparities persist for urban indigenous people and how some clinics have found innovative solutions to providing care in the city. As the urban relocation program faded in the late 1960s, a renewed indigenous civil rights movement was rising. Indigenous people who had moved to cities were organizing. And they really fought to have our programs established, to get healthcare, to get education, to get housing, like all of those things that were important. This is Esther Lucero. Hey everybody, my name is Esther Lucero and I'm Dene on my mom's side and Latina on my dad's side. And I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO for the Seattle Indian Health Board. Activists started occupying federal property to demand services and land. 
One of the highest profile protests took place on Alcatraz Island. The Native Americans reclaimed this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. They took over Alcatraz and demanded these rights and benefits. Since the San Francisco Indian Center burned down, there's no place for Indians to assemble and carry on our tribal life here in the white man's city. Therefore, we plan to develop on this island several Indian institutes. We feel this claim is just and proper and that this land should rightfully be granted to us for as long as the river shall run and the sun shall shine. Signed, Indians of all tribes, November 1969, San Francisco, California. So simultaneously, you think about the American Indian movement and you think about leaders like Bernie White Bear. There are over 3,000 Indian families in greater Seattle, amounting to approximately 12,000 persons. The vast majority are at or below a poverty level of $1,200 per year. And so there was a takeover at Fort Lawton where they demanded these benefits. And it was from that time period that all of the organizations here serving Native folks in Seattle were birthed. In response to the lack of services and discrimination, urban clinics started to open up across the U.S. with a focus on Indigenous peoples' needs. Bernie White Bear, who helped lead the occupation of Fort Lawton in Washington State, would go on to be the first executive director of the Seattle Indian Health Board, which Esther leads today. So the reason people come to us is because the way we survived in urban areas is we began to share our cultural experiences. We shared our cultural practices. Um, We bonded together in social justice movements. And so sometimes people come to us to speak their language or to just see another Native face, you know, to get some reprieve from the racism that we all experience, even myself, who's in a very privileged position, experience on a daily basis. So, you know, we are much more than a community health center or a place that provides direct service. We are a home away from home, and that makes a difference to everybody. Urban indigenous providers also bring cultural competency. Your ceremonial needs may not even be addressed if you were seen at a, another healthcare facility. Or you may even be looked at like you're crazy, <laughs> right? My name is uh, Patrick Rock, R-O-C-K. I'm a family physician as well as CEO of the Indian Health Board. My tribal affiliation is the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. Patrick has been working at the Indian Health Board of Minneapolis since 1997. He says care that respects a person's spiritual or cultural beliefs distinguishes their clinic from others. That's where people want to go. They don't want uh, something that's been cleansed of, of any mention of traditional health care. And so people here, when they come to see me, I ask them, do you go through ceremony? What ceremonies do you go through? If your tribe or your ceremony includes fasting, you know, what do you need to think about as far as insulin is concerned? Growing up in rural Minnesota, Patrick got his health care from the Indian Health Service. As an undergraduate, he volunteered for his tribe's ambulance service. Later, he was a medical resident in Minneapolis. He says serving in the city was different. My mind was blown. I was surprised of really the depth of the need that, uh, that I was encountering during my rotation here. Urban indigenous health providers like those in Minneapolis and Seattle have been around since the 1970s. But Indigenous people still have to navigate a complex system to get the care they're entitled to. Patrick still remembers one patient who seemed to be falling through the cracks, a middle-aged Indigenous man who worked as a mechanic. He initially came in complaining of a rash. And so further questioning of that rash, you know, got down to, 
Yeah, I'm having a lot of swelling in my hands. Patrick diagnosed it as psoriatic arthritis. It's treatable, but Patrick knew the mechanic would need a specialist, a rheumatologist. But the Indian Health Board didn't have one on staff, and they couldn't get him the drugs he needed. We didn't have a pharmacy. We would have to rely on pharmacy companies giving us medications free of charge. This mechanic was facing the same gap in coverage as other indigenous people who moved to the city 50 years ago. He didn't have insurance, and there was no Indian Health Service clinic in the city. We, as urbans, did not have, and still don't have, ability to send a person out to rheumatology and get that paid for, because we don't have contract health services dollars. Contract health services. This is how the Indian Health Service, or tribes, provide care when a service or specialist, like a rheumatologist, is not available in the system. In that case, those services can be found elsewhere, then reimbursed by IHS. But urban Indian health providers, like Patrick's, aren't part of that system. Patrick says this would have gone differently if the mechanic had been diagnosed on tribal land. The tribe or the IHS would have paid for that visit to the rheumatologist. Medications would have been filled through the hospital. The mechanic did eventually make it to a rheumatologist, but Patrick says the patient couldn't afford it and stopped going. The last follow-up that I got from him was he was going to continue to try to work, and he subsequently never came back, which is also upsetting because it I felt, like I say, I felt helpless in that sense. My hands were tied and the system's hands were tied, so. Yes, all of those things happen. Esther Lucero again. You know, anything from, well, I just don't access the service, to I'll take partial service and, oh, I'll wait, you know, for a long time or try to find a way to get back home to get access to a specialty provider. So, yeah, I wish it was more seamless. I really do, but it isn't. Esther says access to care like that mechanic needed is based on what tribe he belonged to, what services would have been available on his reservation, and how well-resourced the urban clinic was. So it really depends on where you are and who you are. Esther says this patchwork system impacts health. I mean, there's a reason when you look at health disparities that, you know, Native folks are at the top of many of them, diabetes, substance use, even accidents, right, heart disease. And I do think that that's partially because of disjointed systems. One of the problems when it comes to caring for Indigenous people in cities is knowing who's living there in the first place. Esther says the Seattle Indian Health Board serves people from more than 370 different tribal nations. But census data often misses Indigenous people altogether or misidentifies them. So, for example, you know, I said that I'm Latina and I'm Dene, right? If I check that Hispanic box, then suddenly I'm moved into a completely different category and it dismisses my Native identity completely. This erasure can hide public health crises in plain sight. Esther says they saw this when they were investigating the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. We found that there are some police systems in some states that only count black or white and nothing else, right? Or we knew that they used initials. Like, for example, here in the city of Seattle, where they used the letter N to signify Negro and Native American. So how can you tease out that data? This history of inaccurate data on indigenous people in urban areas led the Seattle Indian Health Board to create the Urban Indian Health Institute. It's a tribal epidemiology center. 
Tribal epidemiology centers were founded to actually scrub data, you know, like from the CDC or state entities or county entities to tell a true story about our people. So let's use COVID as an example. Data played a key role here. Early on in the COVID pandemic, when vaccine supplies were low, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was recommending that people 70 years and older get priority for vaccines. You know, we took a look at our data. Quite frankly, our people are not living that long. And so we started at 50 and older. So we vaccinated our elders. We vaccinated our language keepers because we know preserving our languages is really key. We um, vaccinated our traditional healers and our knowledge keepers, right? That was very important. The scope of healthcare services for indigenous people in cities has expanded greatly since the 1970s. But even so, Esther says the system is underfunded. There are not enough resources, right? So, you know, this idea that we have this whole pie, we don't have a whole pie. So we are always saying we have to increase funding overall. Patrick Rock with the Indian Health Board in Minneapolis offers the same message. The Indian Health Service is underfunded, period. But if you live within that system where a lot of Native people live in urban centers and IHS has a 1% urban Indian health line item budget, and so there's an incongruity, right? Even that 1% of the Indian Health Service budget has come under threat. President George W. Bush's administration proposed cutting all funding for urban Indigenous health care in its 2007 budget that put our community on edge. Like, are we going to lose our clinic? Urban indigenous clinics across the country were able to rally support. In the end, federal funding wasn't eliminated. But Esther Lucero says that moment looms large in their minds. Let's just be honest. Federal government doesn't like to put out money. Um, They sometimes consider us a burden, often consider us a burden. I find that very frustrating because the reason we have these benefits or we have access to these resources is because 90% of our land, right, was transferred to this, this new system. And so for me, it's like a prepaid benefit. And I wish the general population understood that. It's not part of some, like, welfare system. Right? This is something that we've earned. This is Dr. Celine Gounder. This episode is the last of season four of American Diagnosis. Thank you for listening. Our hope is that we've shown the strength and resilience of Indigenous people. The team shared stories of lost and reclaimed foodways, holding outsiders accountable for violence against Native people and Indigenous physicians reimagining what healthcare looks like. I think our story is one of strength, where folks said we're just not going to take that. The fight for equity continues. Last month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that life expectancy in the United States took a nosedive during the pandemic. American Indians and Alaska Natives saw the biggest drop, nearly seven years, more than any other group. The issue wasn't COVID. The issue was lack of resources, right? And a lack of response to meet the needs of American Indian Alaska Native communities in a time when we are supposed to be receiving services that are equal to the value of the land that we gave up. 
Throughout this season, we map the ways that colonization and manifest destiny have been engines for sickness and death for an indigenous people in this country. We heard from native leaders who showed us how unfulfilled promises led to underfunded healthcare, stories of boarding schools, land loss, and relocation. Those policies and forces severed indigenous people from their traditions and knowledge. So basically we're just recovering from, you know, colonization and the silos that are created and institutional impact. Understanding history is part of recognizing the social determinants that can hurt health. Without that grounding, Esther says when a crisis like the COVID pandemic shows up, there's no context for public health statistics and people are left ill and dying with root causes the medical system does not understand. That's a conversation we need to continue to have. Because I think when you put out data like that, what people say, oh, there's still a problem, right? But no, the system is still a problem. And I want to make sure that we always direct our attention to that. And the times that we are able to act on our own, right, with our own resources and our own strategies, we've been the most effective. This season of American Diagnosis is a co-production of Kaiser Health News and Just Human Productions. Additional support provided by the Burroughs Welcome Fund and Open Society Foundations. This episode of American Diagnosis was produced by Zach Dyer and me. It was engineered by Jim Briggs. Additional reporting from Taylor Cook. Our editorial advisory board includes Jordan Bennett Begay, Alistair Bitsoy, and Brian Pollard. Tanya English is our managing editor. Una Tempest does original illustrations for each of our episodes. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music from the Blue Dot Sessions. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. Follow Just Human Productions on Twitter and Instagram to learn more about the characters and big ideas you hear on the podcast. And follow Kaiser Health News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe to our newsletters at khn.org so you never miss what's new and important in American healthcare, health policy, and public health news. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis. <laughs>